here at last. And this morning, I'm going to be preaching on a decisive event that forever changed the course of human history. But it's not the Christmas story. We start that next week. We, we, we are this morning in the book of Acts one more time before we take a break from that study, and then we'll pick it up again in the new year. We're in the book of Acts, and we are in chapter 15, a section of, of Acts that actually is rarely preached on. And I look back through my notes, and I haven't spoken about it uh, too very often, and yet this really is the pivot point in the life of the early church. You get a sense when you read the book of Acts that everything up until now has been building and momentum to this moment. And the future of the church hinges on what happens here. They call together the first great church council. They invite back from far and wide all of the leaders, the apostles, the elders. And at stake is a weighty theological discussion that will determine the future of the gospel as it goes out to the world. That sounds exciting, but when you actually start reading Acts 15, what you have is a, is a long, drawn-out theological discourse that, well, sometimes we read it and we think, who cares? I mean, really, who, who cares? It's one of those, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin kind of theological questions. But it touches on, I think, four critical for absolutely crucial theological truths and practical truths that will guide and shape the life of the church and have for 2,000 years and will continue to today. What is it about the gospel itself, about the good news itself, that's essential? And we're going to look at that under four different headings. You have them in your notes there. Gospel accuracy, gospel liberty, gospel community, and gospel purity. So let's read the text and, and realize as we go through it that the debate on the surface seems like it's very ancient and, and in some ways not very relevant. And yet, this is the critical moment in the life of the church. Were it not for the, the, the positive outcome of this council, you and I would not be here today. And Christianity would never have escaped the confines of Jerusalem. So let's read it. Acts 15, we're going to read a section at the beginning, verses 1 to 11, and then pick up the story a little bit around verse 22. Acts 15, verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch, and they were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. And so Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. And this news made all the believers very glad. And when they came to Jerusalem... They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. And then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must also be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. 
And after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them, Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. That's the debate. That's how it's framed. Verse 22, this is the outcome. And then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some, on their own, some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And so they choose, chose Judas, also called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. And with them they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. We've heard that some went out from us without our authorization, and they disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. And so we've all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we're sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. I told you on the surface, it seems like a tough one to wrestle with. Let's pray for wisdom. God, your word contains in it truth and encouragement, but also challenge and, and things that honestly, Lord, sometimes are hard for us to wrestle with. But we believe that the same spirit that's spoken about in the book of Acts that was gifted to your people, that same spirit is present here today, guiding us and, and goading us helping us to take these ancient words and apply them to our church and to our city and to our lives. Be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing you see is that this, this debate, this Jerusalem Council, as it may be called as the section title in your Bible, this met, represents a major interruption in the work of the church. Paul and Barnabas, who are out there on the far end of the Mediterranean world doing the work, they have to, they have to stop. In fact, from all over the world, the work stopped, and everybody was drawn back to Jerusalem to engage in this discussion. It says in verse 2, Paul and Barnabas were appointed with other believers to go back to Jerusalem. And we'll get to the question in just a minute, but... But the church sent them on their way, and they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria. It's a long trip. Why? I mean, remember how successful 
Paul and Barnabas had been to this point. He's in the middle of an incredibly successful mission enterprise. It's almost ridiculous to think how successful it was. How unexpectedly the gospel had exploded beyond the bounds of Jerusalem and had taken off in places that nobody could have imagined. Here's a way of measuring career success, if you want to think about it this way. If 2,000 years after you are dead, millions of people like us are meeting every single week to read things that you wrote down under the inspiration of the Spirit, you could call yourself, I think, some kind of success. That's Paul. One of the most successful mission careers in history. And yet, here he is in the middle of his career, and he doesn't say, listen, what we're doing is too important to stop. It's too important to, to, to step aside and, and get involved in the nitty-gritty of a theological debate. We're just going to keep at it. Because that stuff is not important. Can't you see we're changing the world? He stops. He stops and and they have this long discussion. Why? Because he knows how important it is not that not just that we be at work, but but that we be at the right kind of work. Good theology matters. It matters that that what we're trying to do is based on an understanding of God that is sound and accurate. And so he stops. I mean, it's hard for us, I think, to understand because in some ways, their world and our world are, are dramatically different. We are such a, an individualistic culture, are we not? Uh, we are all about personal rights, personal freedoms, uh, personal opinions. Uh, we hear Christianity and we like to talk about the freedom to the freedom to shape what it is that we believe. And, and we like an awful lot to talk about love as the central message of Christianity. And it is. But what about truth? Not so much. Because truth is something you have to submit to. The truth is something that when you come up against it can be terribly inconvenient. We like Christianity that's experiential, that's emotional. Christianity that, that's true. Boy, that's harder for us. Love and truth. We talked about this last week. Love and truth, necessary complements to each other. Not interchangeable, but interdependent. C.S. Lewis, and there's a little quote there at the beginning of your notes from here. Some years ago, he, he wrote a, an article, not a really well-known article. It's called Man or Rabbit. <laughs> Here's what he says. Some people are going to say, all I'm interested in is leading a good life. And I'm going to choose what I believe, not because I think it's true, but because I find it helpful. It's very typical, I think. What people say is, I don't know whether or not something is true, and I don't care. All I need to know is whether it works. Does it work for me? And they might come to say, I'm interested in Christianity, but don't talk to me about doctrine and and dogma and theology. I just want to know if it works. Will it make me happier when I get up on Monday morning? Will it make my family work better? Will it make my bank account be a little bit more predictable? Now realize, I mean, Lewis is writing in about 1943, quite a while ago, and yet he's already dealing with where society today has landed in the West. Don't ask me whether or not Christianity is true. 
I just need to know whether it's helpful. Here's what he says. If Christianity should happen to be true, then it is quite impossible that those who know this truth and those who don't would be equally well equipped for leading a good life. Knowledge of true facts must make a difference to your actions. Suppose you found a man on the point of starvation and you wanted to do the right thing. If you had no knowledge of medical science, you'd probably give him a large, solid meal, and as a result, your man would die. This is what comes from working in the dark. So think, here are two people, he goes on to say. The one believes that, that people are going to live forever, that they were created by God, that they were built so that they can find true and la- lasting significance, purpose, and happiness only by being united to God. The other believes that people are an accident, a result of the blind workings of the universe, that they're going to live for about 70 years, that their happiness is only attainable through good social service and political organization. And There's these two beings. He says there's two sets of beliefs about the universe. They can't both be right, Lewis suggests. The one who is wrong will act in a certain way, a way that doesn't fit the real universe, and consequently, with the best will in the world, they'll be helping themselves and their fellow creatures towards their destruction. You see, truth matters. You can't just say, I only care about it if it works, not whether or not it's true. If it's true, it will work. And here's the quote. You have this in your notes. Christianity, if false, is of no importance. People don't want to say that. They want to be able to say, well, there's some stuff in there that sounds right, and I accept it, and he was a good teacher, but... But at its heart, I don't believe the truth of it. Christianity of false is of no importance, and if true, is of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. The first point that I want you to think about as we, as we pick through this text in Acts 15, about the importance of truth, of gospel accuracy. accuracy. And secondly, and this is really the heart of the issue, The debate in Acts chapter 15 is about gospel liberty. It's about freedom. This is how it starts. Verse 1. There was a group of people who came from Judea to Antioch, and they were teaching the believers, unless you're circumcised, there it is. According to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Yeah. So you can imagine. Welcome to MCBC. (laughs) You want to belong? Let me show you this little side room. We'll take care of things. You probably won't be joining us for worship this Sunday or next Sunday. We'll see you in about four to six weeks. Yeah. Unless you're circumcised according to the laws of Moses, you cannot be saved. And this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. Down in verse 3, he says, they talked about how these Gentiles, these non-Jewish people, had been converted. And the point that they actually come to debate is summarized best by Peter in verse 11. We believe it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, we Jews, but also them, those Gentiles. So here's what the debate is really about. Most of those early Christians, as we saw through the first 12 chapters or so of Acts, 
were Jewish. Because they were Jewish. They were raised with an understanding of the Old Testament, with the laws of the Old Testament. They were raised to honor them and respect them and and strive to follow them. And part of the law meant if you were a Jewish male, you were circumcised. When they talked about circumcision, really what they're talking about is the whole thing. It's a way of representing the whole package. Along with circumcision came the laws about cleanliness and purity and all the ceremonial laws, innumerable things. You can read it if you have the endurance. The book of Leviticus. Read it. There were all sorts of things. This you can eat. This you cannot eat. This you can wear. This you cannot wear. This is the way to cut your hair. This is not the way to cut your hair. This is what you can do. This is where you can go. This is what you can touch. This is what you can't. You had to wash with warm water if you touched the wrong thing. You couldn't go to worship for seven days. This is before SARS. (laughs) And all the early Christians, they followed all of those things because they were Jewish. But when the Gospel starts to escape the bonds of Judaism, goes to places where they have no knowledge of, no familiarity with, no history with, all of the laws of the Old Testament, it makes sense, doesn't it, that that they, they accepted Christ. But all of the other stuff, that was foreign to them. And this started to open a huge rift in the life of the church. The debate was incredibly important because, because what's really at stake is two kinds of freedom that are overlapping. The first is spiritual freedom. Spiritual freedom, simply this. What makes Christianity unique, what makes the gospel ingenious and unique, is that of all the other religions, all traditional religions, really they're basically a kind of advice that's spoken into the world. Here's what you need to do in order to better connect with God, or higher reality, or your truest self, or whatever it is. The gospel is not first about advice. There's lots of good advice in the Bible, but it's not first about how to live. You know what it is, first of all? It's good news. It's good news. It's not advice about what you need to do. First of all, it's news about something that's already been done, and it was done for you. And it's not something that you work towards. It's not something that you achieve. It's something that you receive. It's a gift. It's the season of gifts, right? This This should fit right in for us. Let me put it another way. All other religions, even though they may start by inspiring you towards something, in the end, they're going to be burdening you. It's one of the things that you're going to see if you read the entire chapter in, in Acts 15. The real issue is, do we burden the Gentiles with all of these other things that we've been burdened with? And it felt like a burden for them. Are we going to put this on the Gentiles? No. And I'll tell you why. Because the Gospel always starts by taking the burdens away. It's about freedom. It's about liberty. The Gospel is you're saved by grace. Right there in verse 11. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Even we Jews, even the Jews believed it because they knew as much as they understood and strove to follow the laws of Moses, intricate and detailed as they were, nobody was successful in that. They knew that in the end they relied on the grace of God. The gospel takes off burdens. 
right away, the minute you become a Christ follower, it takes off, it should take off the burden of trying to prove yourself. Look at me, God. Is it enough? Have I got it right? Is it good enough? It takes off the burden of the past. You know what that is? Guilt and regret and all of those things, those heavy shackles that that drag us down. It takes off the burden of the future. You know what future burden is? Fear that you're not going to live up to whatever standards you feel have been imposed on you. It takes off the past, guilt and regret, and the future. Fear about not living up. If you're from a, from a traditional culture, it takes off the crushing burden of, of family expectations. Some of you know what that is, right? It says you're not defined by what your parents thought you must do. You are saved by grace. And you are loved by God. If you're from a Western culture, from time to time, and from the time you were little, you're probably told, you can be whatever you want to be. Sounds refreshing, doesn't it? It's not. At the age of 12, you're asked to start writing it down. I want to be the first female president. The the first woman to walk on the moon. I want to be a fashion model, at least for the first six years. And then I want to win a gold medal and then a Nobel Prize. And... And you're 12 years old and everybody is telling you, set goals. You can be anything you want to be. Isn't that liberating? No, it's not liberating. It's crushing. Here's why. Because as the years go by, one after one, you realize, I'll never do that. And I'll never do that. And I don't even want to do that. And all of it is taken off of you. But here's the gospel. Freedom. At last. Spiritual freedom. But what's going on in Acts chapter 15? Well, you've got this group of rabble-rousers who come in and say, well, yeah, the gospel's good news. It's great. Jesus is great. He loves us. He dies for us. That's great. Let me get my scissors. Because, (laughs) sorry, because you also need to do this. And let me tell you about our special diet and our special clothing and our trendy hairstyle. You're going to love it. Unless you do these things, you cannot be saved. Whenever you have Jesus plus something else, you know what happens? You lose your freedom. You slip back into it. And and honestly, the church is constantly slipping back into it. Let me read you a quote here. This is talking about how the church is slipping back. When all of this begins to happen, hardline fundamentalists begin to, to rule out all of these activities, like the theater, because of its origins in pagan worship, like dancing, because it might inflame ill-controlled sexual passions, like cosmetics. If God meant you to smell like a flower, He would have given you a crop of them on your head. (laughs) Guess when that was written? Any guess? It's okay to be wrong. 1800s, that's what I would have guessed. I was written to a man named Tertullian about 148 AD. We've been slipping back for a long time. A long time. 
The point is that Christians are always at risk of losing their freedom and slipping out of the idea that we are saved by grace. Just, just grace. Something about us doesn't really want to believe that because we always want to add more stuff to it. I mentioned there's two overlapping kinds of freedom. Overlapping with this spiritual freedom is cultural freedom. Because this is not just a spiritual discussion. This is also a cultural one. What they're saying essentially is if you want to be a Christ follower, you need to become Jewish. And Judaism, then as now, is a proud and rich, and don't hear anything derisive about it. But, but it is a cultural identity, not just a spiritual identity. See, Paul's argument is this. All of those old laws, all of those Old Testament laws, they shouldn't be applied to believers anymore. Why? Because the person to whom they were all pointing has now come. They were all like a shadow. The reality has come, Jesus himself. But secondly... Now that we see believers are not only Jews, they're all tongue and tribe and nation, and Christians are out there everywhere in the world and bringing the word of God, it means that if you're Roman, you can still be Roman. If you're Greek, you can still be Greek. You don't have to become Jewish. Or you don't have to become Western. Or you don't have to become British or or whatever it was in the great missionary expansions of the church where sometimes we mess this up. You don't have to become culturally anything. If you're Asian, if you're African, if you're Greek, whatever you are, you become a Christian, whatever you are. You don't leave something to become something else in order to be Christian. That's, that's why Paul was saying that cultural freedom flows from spiritual freedom. If you lose that sense of grace, you fall back into legalism. And the more that happens, the more people pick up all these little bits of their own culture and apply it to the gospel, and it happens in churches all the time, the more we're putting people in bondage. We do it by suggesting that God is only fully honored in certain ways of singing or dressing or certain patterns for gathering. Let me give you a great example. I did uh, a whole bunch of weddings this year. Um, almost all the weddings I get to do now are cross-cultural because that's just that's what the world is in the GTA. That's what our church is. Um, this is a Caribbean wedding. Okay, Caribbeans who are here, love me on this. Okay, you're gonna love me on this. Two o'clock wedding start. I'm there at one thirty. Um, I'm there at one thirty because I'm gonna welcome all of the groomsmen who are getting there at one thirty, right? Because they're going to be welcoming people at one thirty. There's me. There's the custodian. At 1.45, there's me, there's the custodian, and there's two other white couples. And that's it. By about 2.30, so half hour after the proposed start time, the next person arrives, uh, an elderly Caribbean woman. Okay? By about 10 to 3, the groomsmen arrive. A little after three, the rest of the family start to arrive. And what's happening for the white pastor and those two white families? There's that growing sense of impatience, right? It said two o'clock, right? Didn't they know? They told me two o'clock. They printed it on their invitations. 
We got started at 3.30. And the custodian, who wanted to go home for dinner, was the one saying, you got to go, you got to go, you got to go. In other words, people were noticing there, not just that their cultures were different. They're actually tempted to say that we are better people because we're always on time. Meanwhile, other people are saying, those white folks are so uptight. <laughs> I wasn't there at 2 o'clock. You know why? I wasn't ready. Right? Loosen up, lighten up. This is supposed to be fun. This is meant to be a good day. This isn't work for us. It's meant to be enjoyable. But it wasn't. See, I think it's great to be able to say that we're different. My culture is different. But when that leads us to say my culture is better, that's when we start to layer into our understanding of the gospel something that takes away freedoms. Christians ought to be the most culturally flexible, adaptable, celebrational people in the world. We ought to be able to say, I'm saved by grace. I don't have to look at the cultural distinctives and say that I'm better or or, or worse in some way than others. There's freedom in Christ. The passage should also tell us something about, this is the third point, about gospel community. You know why? Think about this. There's a dispute. Long debate. In fact, we didn't even read most of it. Verses 12 to 22. Lots of debate, back and forth. Reading the Bible, studying the text, arguing about it. And then what happens? Go down with me to verse 22. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church, in other words, they all agreed. You know what they agreed to? It says there in verse 24, we've heard that there were these people who went out from us without our authorization and they caused a ruckus. Look at verse 27. Therefore, we're going to send you trusted emissaries, ambassadors, Judas and Silas, to confirm by word of mouth what it is we're writing. And here it is. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden. There it is, the gospel that takes off burdens. Not to burden you with anything beyond the following. And I'm going to get to this in a second. But look what it says. It's fascinating. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. I mean, that's almost hilarious. How did they know? How did they know this is what the Holy Spirit wanted for them? They sit there in a room, just waiting for a voice to speak? Waiting for that mysterious hand to write on the wall? No. They studied the Bible together, in community. They prayed together. They debated together. I bet it was pretty heated for a while. And then, after all of it, they agreed that this is what God's Word says, and therefore, this is what the Holy Spirit wants. I'll tell you something. Modern Westerners feel like you can really be a great Christian, a great person, without ever connecting with a church. And I, I know there's lots of reasons for that, and, and, and among them are that just we don't have faith in institutions anymore, and and of course, it depends on what you mean by being a really good Christian. Can you be saved without being part of a church? Sure. All evangelicals believe that. But I don't think that's what people really mean when they say that. Here's what they mean. I can decide, I get to decide what God wants for me. 
I get to decide His calling in my life. I get to decide His will for my life. I can discern the Holy Spirit all on my own, all by my little self. Thank you very much. I can read the Bible by myself. I can sit there. I can wait for a voice. I can do it by myself. Here's the point. When you come together, when you pray together, when you study God's Word together, that's when you have the confidence that you're reading it correctly. Why? I have so many prejudices and biases. And guess what? So do you. In fact, turn, no, don't turn to the person next to you. <laughs> they know already. They came together, they studied their Bible, they did it under the authority of Scripture. They didn't just talk about their feelings. And they didn't just wait for a voice. They studied in community, and that's how they knew God's direction. How do you know what God wants for you? You can't do it just on your own. And I'm not saying that that never happens, I guess, but I'm saying that, that I think you'd be wise not to trust just yourself. It's the community of God that reveals. It's community that reveals the will of God. It's gospel community. And then let me just say one more thing about the life of this community. It's essential, yes, but look at one of the marks, one of the important things about what makes the community healthy. It would take some time to parse it out, but here's what they're saying. You Gentile Christians, now listen, you don't have to, you don't have to take all of that, that cultural weight and, and all of that ceremonial law and all of that stuff in Leviticus, but... Could you, could you go, or could you not go out of your way to do things that are going to be really offensive when you're sitting at a table with your Jewish brothers and sisters? To that end, uh, be careful when it comes to setting a table with meat that may have been in the presence of idols. Even though maybe there's no reason why you couldn't, technically or morally, give up the right to do that. Or food that hasn't been, been properly prepared with some of the, the understanding or teaching about how to handle food safely and, and how to abstain from, from contact with uncooked and unprocessed blood and meat. C could you do it out of love for your brothers and sisters who are at the table with you? So you don't offend them, so that it goes to good relationships. Isn't that something? So you have there at the very beginning that mixture of love and truth. You don't compromise on the truth. You debate it. You make sure that you know what it is. And then when you have it, you use it in love. You apply it in love. You practice it in love. Does that make sense? Here's the last thing. And then we'll, we'll wrap it up. Really the main point of, of all of that stuff in the Old Testament that looks so curious and so foreign to us. The main point of the ceremonial law and circumcision is to drive home the difference between cleanliness and uncleanliness, between purity and holiness and the lack of it. Verse 9 there is the place where Peter, a Jewish man, gets up and he says, God didn't discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. He didn't prefer Jews over Gentiles. He purified their hearts by faith. You have to remember that 
that if you were born into a Jewish home, you were taught your entire life that Gentiles, non-Jewish people, were unclean. They did unclean things. They lived unclean lives. They were, they were guilty of all kinds of abominable practices. They worshipped idols. And, and so Peter, for goodness sake, says, the Gentiles are clean. They'd never heard that before. It must have been hard for him to say. It must have stuck in his throat a little bit. But they're clean because they believe in Jesus. And even though they're not eating all the things that, that we say they ought to eat or abstaining from all the things that we say they ought to hold back on, even though they're not circumcised, they're clean. Why? By faith. They're clean. I'll tell you what that is. And then we'll, uh, we'll end with this. Flip in your Bibles to Colossians. Colossians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 11 and 12. Paul's writing here to the Colossians. <laughs> wow. The insights get deeper. But the Colossians are, are not a Jewish people. This is not a Jewish church. These are Gentiles. Listen to what he says. In Him, you, you Colossian Gentiles, were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands but made by the circumcision of Christ who took our trespasses and nailed them to the cross. What is that? That's not highlighted in your Bibles, right? That one doesn't get plaqued and hung in the kitchen at home. I waited to the very end to say this, but you know, the whole idea of circumcision, uh, let's be honest, it's, it's kind of gross. Right, And it kind of feels like a weird thing to be talking about in church. Why in the world would God choose that as a sign of anything? It's painful, it's bloody, it's, it's intensely vulnerable, it's basically violent. Why is that a sign of anything? The answer is that it was a sign of the covenant. We're going to come to the table which is our sign of the covenant. The covenant is the promise, the agreement that binds two parties together. You know, in ancient times, this is what you did when you made an agreement with somebody, when you made a covenant with somebody. If you were making a covenant with the king, you said, I promise to do this and this and this. How would you ratify it? You didn't go to your lawyer's office with two witnesses and sign the back page of the contract. What you did was you visibly reenacted the consequences of what would happen if you broke the covenant. In their case, here's what they would do. They would take an animal and they would cut it in half. Gross. And they would lay it on the floor and they would walk between the two halves of the carcass as if to say, let this happen to me if I break the terms of the covenant. The covenant was cut. If you have some old school English, you might even be familiar with that language. The cutting of the covenant. You're acting out the curse. And some of you, I mean, you already know what that means, what that looks like. The minute you lie to a friend or to a spouse, you immediately feel the curse starting to work. You feel lonelier because the curse of sin is always to be cut off. A little more distance between you and the person that you've wronged. 
A lot more distance between you and God. Circumcision was a physical reminder of the consequences of living without God. You're cut off. Cut off. Here's what's so radical. Paul was looking not just at Gentiles, but at women too, by the way, who would would seem weren't included in a covenant that couldn't be symbolically represented in their body, but they were. But this is what he said, you, Jews and Gentiles, men and women, you're all circumcised spiritually. Now what does that mean? It means you're clean. How did that happen? Read carefully, it says, it happened on the cross. On the cross when, when blood was shed. On the cross when He hung naked, intensely vulnerable. On the cross when He went under the knife. On the cross when He was cut off from the land of the living. Because He was cut off, you and I were brought in. And it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you may feel guilty about. You're clean. You see, I hope the importance of of gospel accuracy, because it leads to gospel liberty, freedom in Christ. It drives you towards gospel community. And all of it points the way towards gospel purity. Let's pray. Father, make us a church that can reach out to this diverse, culturally diverse, ethnically diverse city, this place that we love. We want to reach out to them with love, with confidence. We want to do it in a way that's winsome and loving, but also with truth. Because we've received the spiritual and cultural freedom that comes through the Gospel. Help us, Lord, to do that. We pray in Jesus' name.